So I think I'd like to uh, title this evening's talk as Swimming Against the Tide. This is a phrase often found in the Buddhist teaching, which somehow describes a kind of a, almost the magnitude of the journey and the depth of the journey, and at times really describes the challenge, I think, of everything that we're doing here. Uh, through our lives, we have longings, aspirations, values, sometimes articulated and sometimes unspoken, yet they guide our preferences, our actions, our choices, our directions, and in truth, they, they guide the very lives that we lead. <clears throat> Now, some of these longings or aspirations, they can be quite personal, and yet many of them are universal longings. And many of these skillful longings, the, the Buddha refers to as kusala, or wholesome, skillful desires. The longings for happiness and safety and protection the longings, the aspirations to live a fulfilled, a creative, and embodied life, the longings to be free from distress and fear and, and to know in ourselves, to have in ourselves the emotional and psychological resilience and maturity that would enable us to navigate our way through this life without floundering or being overwhelmed. We would aspire, I think we would wish, to have the maturity and the sensitivity and balance that would allow us to meet the adversity, to meet difficulty, that are part of all of our lives with compassion and insight and balance. Now, I'm sure we would probably all agree that at times our longings, our aspirations are realized and fulfilled and we feel to some degree embodied. And at other times we can be quite mystified and bewildered when the shape of our life and all it brings and our reactions to it somehow seems very far removed from the life or the experience that we envisaged for ourselves. We can long for a, a mind and an emotional life of clarity and calmness and compassion, and there are the moments when we find ourselves meeting life with confusion and reactivity and impulse. I'm sure we would long to have a life guided by kindness and compassion. And yet, there are moments when anxiety and anger and judgment arise probably more frequently than we would really like. We'd probably all love to have a peaceful mind, a peaceful heart. And yet, agitation and restlessness can be very familiar visitors. This path is concerned with embodiment. It's concerned with our longings and deepest aspirations being translated into our words, our felt experience, our speech, our choices. And being concerned with embodiment, this path and this teaching is also concerned with dissonance the gaps, the places of disconnection between our longings and our aspirations and our very felt realities. Now, I think uh, in many people's lives, the, the path, this path of investigation, the path of cultivation, the path of mindfulness, actually begins in these places where there are gaps. The wish to understand, to deeply understand the places of disconnection and dis dissonance. 
Now, sometimes when things just don't quite work out the way we hope for, or our minds or our hearts are not quite the minds and hearts we wanted, we can feel kind of bewildered, like, how did I end up here? Sometimes followed by the word again, unfortunately. Um, or how did I get end up in this hole again? And the bewilderment that, that often arises initially out of an awareness, and it's an uncomfortable awareness. I think dissonance is, a, is an uncomfortable awareness, isn't it? And yet I think it's a, it's a kind of positive discomfort. I think if we weren't uncomfortable in the places where there's gaps or dissonance between our aspirations and values and our felt realities then I would suspect we're not really walking this path. But initially, that, that bewilderment or that discomfort can be met with a range of responses when we're aware of the gaps, the disconnections. That awareness can be met with a range of responses. Some of them are very familiar. We can become quite judgmental of ourselves. You know, not good enough, not doing it right, impossible. We can become quite blaming at times we can become quite despairing and just feel that it we're kind of helpless, you know, or, or even hopeless. Or, of course, another response all too familiar with, to us when we meet something we're uncomfortable with is that we get busy, you know, and we get agitated, sometimes trying to force ourselves and our lives into something that resembles our expectations. Or that discomfort around dissonance can also be met more intentionally. Now the question of what it is that obscures our minds, our heart's capacity for clarity, stillness, creativity the question of what it is that obscures our hearts, our minds' capacity for kindness, insight, compassion. These are important questions. It's important to us today, we see that that question of what it is that obscures was also a question equally important 2,500 years ago in the time of the Buddha. When people grappled with the same questions around dissonance or disconnection. It's a question, I think, what it is that obscures our heart's capacity that, for, for all that's possible, that really lies very much at the heart of the path of awakening. Now, the Buddha recognized, I think, as we very much recognize ourselves, is that there's a certain tension in waking up be nice, wouldn't it, if we just all came on to retreat and we had the intention we're going to sit here for seven days, you know, profoundly awake, profoundly peaceful, and everything just fell into place. It would be quite lovely, wouldn't it? Has anybody had that experience yet? <laughs> Most likely not. Hmm? We see there is a, a tension in waking up. On one side of this tension, I think, lies all of that I've spoken about, our deepest aspirations, our intentions to be clear, kind, insightful, compassionate human beings. And alongside that, on the, the other side of this tension, lies the whole world of our habits, Many of them are historical, emotional habits. The, the world of reactivity and emotional habit that seems at times to have the power to hijack and overwhelm our intentionality. Now, we could, of course, view this tension as being something quite ne negative. But my own sense in reality is that this is a creative Attention. This is the classroom of our practice, the classroom where every single path of mindfulness actually begins. 
You see that our, our minds, our hearts, and be aware when we use the mind, the word mind here, in, in Buddhist psychology, mind, heart are interchangeable words, you know. So we're not talking just about a conceptual world versus an emotional world or a cognitive world versus a felt world. Uh, we could just say mind, heart. So sometimes we could say heart and we also mean mind. Sometimes we mean mind, we also mean heart. So what we see is our minds are involved in an ongoing process of interacting, responding, reacting to the world around us and to the world within us. Now some of these reactions or responses are quite skillful. They're rooted in calmness. They're rooted in kindness and understanding. We also see that we have another whole portfolio of reactions that are more habitual. They're impulsive, compulsive even reactions that are unhelpful in the sense, not bad or wrong, but unhelpful in the sense that they really do layer dukkha upon dukkha and compound distress And it is also, I think, in our own experience, too, that many of these habitual, impulsive, compulsive reactions are the ones that lead us to end up in places quite far removed from where we actually wish to be or intend to be. They often lead us to places removed from who we wish to be. Now, the Buddha distilled this range of habitual reactions down to a short list of five, which is good news, because we couldn't all memorize this and actually retain it. Now, this short list of five habitual reactions is very, very explicit in the Buddhist teaching of awakening, it's far less explicit in MBCT and MBSR programs. And I think it's an ongoing discussion about why that is so. It's certainly an ongoing mystery to the three of us. So it's an ongoing discussion, seeing as we actually are involved in this world, about why that is so. Now, just because it's not explicit in uh, mindfulness-based interventions certainly does not imply that people in those programs don't experience this short list of five, because they certainly do, as do the trainers, by the way. Um, now, these, this short list of five is often referred to as the hindrances, which is a word I'm very, very reluctant to use, First of all, because people very very, uh, often see this very superficially, but also because it's not that accurate and hindrances actually seems like a negative word to me. You know, something's stopping us. Something's hindering us. I think the more accurate words are concerned with what is it that obscures or veils our capacity to embody our deepest intentions and aspirations? What is it that obscures or veils our capacity to actually really embody our intentions and to see clearly? And these, these obscurations or these mental qualities, psychological qualities and experiences, I think of them, they're kind of like a fog, They're they're kind of like a a mist that suddenly descends and they create a kind of amnesia about what our intentions and aspirations actually are. And for a while, it's like we just get lost in these fog states. So to, to go into this list, there is a sensual desire. There's ill will. There's sleepiness and drowsiness, or sometimes more archaically referred to as sloth and torpor. There's restlessness and worry, and there's skeptical doubt. Now, although we can speak about these patterns individually, um, 
and sometimes we do speak about them individually because many people do kind of a spot that they have expertise in one rather than the other quality. Like some people don't do skeptical doubts so well, but they're really good at aversion. You know, and, and some people don't do restlessness and worry that much, you know, but they're amazingly good at sensual desire. So we, this is probably not news to us. We sort of get a sense of our own expertise. But in reality, of course, these five are very interactive patterns. Sensual craving or sensual desire can stimulate a lot of restlessness and worry, which in turn can trigger doubt, Doubt, in turn, can trigger aversion. Aversion, in turn, can actually just really collapse into sleepiness and drowsiness. And we see this, actually, interaction going on many, many moments in our day. You know, if I gave you a a simple example, you know, we've had lunch, it was good. We'd like another plate of food. Um, and, and so, you know, we kind of strategize around that a little bit. You know, that's kind of like the restlessness and worry, you know. So we strategize, well, tomorrow, if I really don't go to mindful movement, I could be first in the line. And then, you know, and then we, we sort of kind of ponder that. It makes our mind a little agitated thinking because we're pretty sure that trade-off is not going to win a lot of praise. So... So we get a little worried about that, whether somebody's going to spot this. Whether somebody's actually going to spot this. And then we kind of get very agitated about what people think about us. But we get to the line, and lo and behold, there's a whole bunch of people there before us, and we see the food disappearing. And we see the kind of aversion starting to come in. Well, what a bunch of greedy people, you know? Look, it's all going, it's all going. And so the aversion comes in, and then we, then we also can turn that inwardly. You know, well, I'm calling them greedy. Look at all I did to get here first in the line. I'm a pretty greedy person too, you know. Not a very good yogi, an example. And then we have a lot of doubt. You know, a good meditator wouldn't have done any of this, you know. So I must be a pretty terrible meditator. I'm pretty hopeless at all of this. And then, you know, we could just go on and on all day about this, couldn't we? I mean, there's a lot of fuel there. And, you know, when we really wear ourselves out with all this restlessness of worry and, and strategizing and aversion, we're so exhausted after it all, we just kind of check out and go to sleep. So we can see, when we look carefully at these five patterns, what we actually see is that they are implicated in every psychological and emotional storm we experience. That's very important to see. These are not patterns reserved for meditation. If you look carefully at any psychological or emotional storm you experience in a day or that you've seen people that you work with experience, it will be pretty easy, I think, to begin to spot the threads of these patterns. They're very clear in states of depression, states of anxiety, Beliefs in inadequacy. So keep in your mind just a kind of, kind of this list of sensual desire, of aversion or ill will, of restlessness and worry, of sloth and torpor and doubt, or sleepiness and drowsiness. Just keep it in your mind. Now, it's very easy to create rather unhelpful attitudes towards these patterns, and particularly any of you who've had some experience in meditation in the past may be more inclined to foster these unhelpful attitudes. Because one of the unhelpful attitudes that is formed is these are kind of like issues, meditation issues, to get over and to get rid of so I can really begin to meditate. Now, in the Buddhist teaching of awakening, these patterns or obscurations are not nuisances, they're not an inconvenience to get over. 
But they are some of the most deeply embedded emotional and psychological habits that are to be understood because they are the patterns that suffocate and deny wakefulness and insight and kindness and compassion. Certainly, I find myself that the more I teach, the more I end up speaking about these patterns as much as speaking about metta. Because these habit, these habit patterns, they are the ones that create and recreate dukkha or distress. It's understanding that, that dukkha, what John was speaking about last night, these threads of disquiet, these threads of dissatisfaction in all their spectrum, this is not referring to a static state. Distress or dukkha is something that is created and recreated through embodying, actually not what is helpful, but through embodying these more unhelpful habit patterns. One of the things we see very, very clearly is these habit patterns sabotage intention. That's that's what I think is most important to understand. The way that these habit patterns sabotage intention. I'm sure we've seen this many, many times, you know, most of us probably go into the day with an intention, even if it's not spoken, to approach the world with, you know, respect and kindness and mindfulness until the train's late. And then we see the kind of patterns of reactivity go along, and that intention is entirely kind of sabotaged. Or until we meet the uncooperative person or our back hurts, or we go out in the rain and we've forgotten our umbrella, or we receive some difficult news, and we feel the way in which our intentionality gets overwhelmed by these obscuration, veiling patterns. I mean, I'm sure you've seen this here so far, even it, particularly I see it really in the walking meditation. You know, because most of us, when we come in here to sit, I mean, there's a few thoughts that come and go, aren't there? But, you know, most people come in here to sit and, and you know, you, you have the thought, you know, a cup of coffee would be great right now. Most people wouldn't actually get up and go and make themselves a cup of coffee in the middle of the sitting. Maybe it's just peer pressure, you know. <laughs> Or maybe it's because we have set a container for ourselves which somehow keeps that intention alive to to see our way through that thought. But we notice that I think much more in the walking walking practice, you know, where again exactly that same thought could arise. And before we even know it, we're at the tea urn. You know, making that cup of tea or that cup of coffee. And it's like the, the habit pattern just kind of sweeps the intention to one side. And we end up right there. We, we weren't even thirsty. It was just a thought. But it's, it's kind of pushed us behaviorally. So what we're really asked to envisage in this path is the genuine possibility of a life and a mind and a heart no longer governed by patterns of reactivity. Now, in the Buddhist teaching of awakening, these five, the list of five that I gave you, are actually the five manifestations of three deeper habit patterns of greed, hatred, and confusion or delusion. And those three much deeper, more deeply rooted patterns are in themselves manifestations of what is called you know, primary confusion, primary ignorance, primary delusion. So actually what we're seeing here in terms of Buddhist psychology is a continuum. Right? It's a continuum. So we have the core ground of what is called ignorance and we need to hear that word very clearly because it's not meant as an insult. It's meant about just not knowing how things actually are. So that basic confusion gets manifested or, or kind of, yeah, gets activated or manifested in greed, hatred, and delusion, which in turn flows through these five patterns 
of essential desire, of aversion, of restlessness and worry, sleepiness and drowsiness and doubt. So as you can see, we're not talking about small stuff here. Hmm? We're actually talking about the, the core challenges within a path of awakening. So to uproot these five patterns is to actually uproot the causes of distress and suffering and to bring distress to an end. Now the Buddha used a number of similes um, of what it is like to be free of these habit patterns. He said to be free from the grip of sensual craving or desire is like suddenly being relieved of a debt, of no longer being a debt, in debt. Because it's like being freed from being held in the kind of grip of conditions. Hmm? He said, aversion, being freed from aversion, is like the recovery from an illness. And you can probably get a sense of that, because aversion really is quite painful. He said being freer of sleepiness and dullness, sloth and torpor, is like being released from prison because you really probably have felt how solid that can feel. To be free from restlessness and worry is like being freed from slavery. And to be freed really from doubt is like crossing a dangerous desert safely. He used other similes to describe what the what it's like to be held in the grip of these patterns. And he said, to be, to be caught within the world of sensual desire is like trying to see our own reflection in water that is colored by dye. To be held in the grip of aversion is like trying to see our reflection in water that's been heated to a boil. To be... For, to be um, held in the grip of sleepiness and dullness is like trying to see yourself in water that's covered with algae. And to be held in the grip of restlessness and worry is like trying to see your reflection in water that has been agitated and stirred by strong winds. And that to be held in the grip of doubt is like trying to see your face in water that is dark and muddy. So in mindfulness practice, these states or these patterns are actually turned into objects of mindfulness. They're turned into objects of meditation. The places where we're actually invited to develop insight and calm and actually to cultivate the qualities of heart and mind which very much serve to uproot these factors. And you always see this tension in, in, in Buddhist teaching, you know, about cultivating and letting go. Letting go and cultivating. They're always going hand in hand. So often in this practice, what the focus is on is actually what we cultivate to actually allow the habit patterns to be uprooted. It's another list, not surprisingly. So we, we learn to cultivate mindfulness. We learn to cultivate investigation around these patterns. We learn to cultivate energy and joy, calmness, sustained attention, and equanimity. Now these cultivations actually, again, are very, very explicitly spoken about in Buddhist psychology. But I could give a whole other talk about the way these qualities are implicitly interwoven, uh, implicitly interwoven, in the eight-week programs that many of you teach. The first step is mindfulness. We actually need to know these patterns as they are. We need to know these obscurations as they arise. We need, we're asked to develop the emotional vocabulary to know. Because knowing, or mindfulness in this teaching, that knowing is always the ground of wise effort. It's always the ground of wise responsiveness. Now I want to look, I want to look at some of these, these actually, I want to look at them individually, although do bear in mind they don't operate independently. 
So sensual desire. Now, a lot of people would say, well, what on earth is the problem with this? What on earth is the problem? You know, much of our culture and our psychology is actually rooted and revolves around sensual desire. We see that we are sensual beings. We are constantly interfacing with the world of sense impressions, both pleasant and unpleasant. Now, as causes of suffering, sensual desire is not concerned with the rejection or the denial of the reality of sensual pleasure. It exists in our world. It exists in our experience. And there is much that is delightful, that is lovely, that is pleasant. The sounds that come to us in the day, there's many of the sights, the, the beauty of nature in the rest of our lives, music, poetry, art. And, you know, some meditators in their suspicion of sensual desire and the, the, the suspicion of immediately falling into craving um, can actually reject and turn away from that which is lovely and kind of misname it, renunciation. But in reality, it is part of wakefulness, isn't it? To be able to meet the lovely, the delightful, the pleasant with sensitivity and receptivity, to, to know the ways that that gladdens our hearts and gives a taste of spaciousness and joy. It's all important in the fabric of awakening. But what we do see is that sensual appreciation is the appreciation of the lovely that comes to us. Sensual desire or sensual craving is actually the pursuit of what hasn't yet come to us. So sensual appreciation is important to be able to step outside and to see the trees against the sky, to listen to the birds, because this teaches us something about receptivity. It teaches us something about um, stillness and appreciation. Now, underneath sensual appreciation, there does lie this slightly or even very much more toxic pattern of sensual craving. Basic realities as human beings, we want to be comfortable. We certainly don't want to be uncomfortable. We want to feel good. We don't want to feel bad. This is part of human makeup. In a way, we're hardwired to turn towards the pleasant and away from the unpleasant. But look what happens in this continuum. How much our wanting to feel good can turn into the insistence that we feel good. The insistence that we feel good turns into demand, turns into I need to feel good, and turns into a belief system in which fear and anxiety begins to surround it. I remember some years ago, I was in a supermarket doing some shopping and on a parallel aisle to me, going up and down in a parallel fashion, was a, a mother with a young child in the, in the supermarket cart she was pushing. And I could hear it sort of just beginning to unfold. And this, this little girl, you know, she started as a... Mommy, I like that. Mommy, I need that. And within an aisle or two, it was, Mommy, I want that. I have to have that. And all of the tears and the despair and the upset. And I thought, oh, this poor little child has kind of talked herself into this distress. And I thought, well, I think I've seen that mind before. We're kind of this sense that we, our very lives, our very survival depends upon getting what we want and sustaining our contact with the pleasant sensation and avoiding the unpleasant. Now, what is interesting is that when sensual appreciation goes into that near enemy of sensual craving, it actually sabotages our capacities for appreciation and stillness it turns into this craving, this hunger, this appetite that can't be quenched, that has so no answer 
and that can become such a driving force in our life. Once a year I teach in Switzerland and the center there is actually placed in this most exquisite location. So when you're not in the middle of clouds, you're, you're just looking out over the Eiger and Jungfrau and, you know, the whole Alp range. Of course, when the clouds come, you don't see a thing. It's a bit like the hindrances. But, um, but when, the, when the sky is clear, there it is. And, and I remember once, a few years ago teaching, and, you know, most people who go there absolutely glory in this view. You know, it's pretty amazing. And someone was mentioning to me about how, how amazing, how they'd come to the retreat because they'd been the year before and actually I'd felt so astounded and so touched by this view. And they said to me, but you know what? It's not as beautiful as I remember it. Now, I'm really quite sure the Alps really didn't change that much in a year. <laughs> in a <clears throat> but somehow even that... That central appreciation turning into central craving, actually sabotaging the capacity for appreciation and actually to see anything anew. When central craving becomes, in, in this compulsive fashion, it patterns our relationships to our acts, our thoughts, our choices. What it actually does, it goes much deeper into shaping this never-enough mind. The hungry ghost image is often used in Buddhist teaching, you know, in, in Tibetan teaching, that you know, there's these beings who wander through the universe, you know, with these enormous bellies and the, these skinny little throats and tiny pinprick mouths, and they're kind of driven by appetite but can never ever be satisfied. This is a kind of patterning, this patterning of sensual craving um, that really actually reinforces, instead of delivering satisfaction, actually instead just reinforces a belief in insufficiency. I don't have enough is often translated into the thought that I am not enough. This kind of culture of deprivation what sensual craving is doing is it becomes a mechanism used to find and secure happiness and sufficiency in places where it's impossible to do so because it externalizes happiness, externalizes sufficiency. And I think we, we actually need to be so mindful of the power of sensual craving and how, how it very sort of... Uh, disconnects us from where we are and, uh, and what is and reinforces insufficiency. It's not just the big things, you know. It's the little ways in which that pattern can run through our days and kind of like the hungry eyes and the hungry ears and the hungry, hungry mind. We also, we also see that these, these emotional patterns have such a powerful effect on uh, cognitively, because uh, when central craving is really operating, there's a ground for a whole lot of narrative and storytelling that arises out of discontent because central craving usually arises out of discontent with what is. So then we have the story about fantasizing about the perfect moment, um, the perfect meditation, the, the, the fantasies of anticipating what is to come. Of, it's never about now. The ideal meditation, the ideal relationship, the ideal life, because we equate that with the ideal me. That that's when I will be worthy, lovable, adequate, acceptable, when I have somehow arranged or managed to to realize this craving that feels so compulsive and insistent. There are many antidotes to this kind of very powerful energy. One of them is contentment. One of them is investigation. Really being able to ask the question of what in this moment is truly lacking about being able to come back to what is here, calming the narrative. Because sensual craving is always about later. 
It's about something that's not here. I think we need to be very careful of the effect that this energy has on us in terms of creating and recreating distress. It's a short poem from Rumi. He said, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in. I should be suspicious of what I want. Now, the insight proposed by the Buddha is recognizing that life brings the lovely. The world of conditions or life also brings difficulty and affliction. This is the human story. And at times, things can, conditions can be extremely difficult in life. But the sources of reactivity actually lie within our own minds and hearts, not in the world of conditions. I also propose that the sources of deepest happiness lie within our own hearts. Now, implicitly linked to the patterning of sensual craving is the patterning of ill will or aversion. It's about what we don't want. Hmm? For sensual craving to be operating, there has to be a rejection of what we're actually experiencing. These two are cooperative processes. Hmm? We're craving, in the craving for something that is not, we are rejecting what is. Now, there's way too much to say about aversion in the time I have available tonight, so I may continue with that lovely topic later on in the week. Um, But it is important to say, I think, that the most transformative shift that I ever see anybody make in meditative practice, and I think the most important shift that anybody makes in mindfulness-based interventions, is actually the shift out of being governed by aversion into some quality of kindness and befriending. And this is, a, this is actually what transforms the mind. And it's no easy shift to make, but it is the most transformative. Now, aversion or ill will, of course, is no stranger to us. It can be directed outwardly, and it can also, a lot of it can be directed inwardly. It can be directed to the world of conditions and people, the things we don't like. But the biggest burden, I think, is when it is turned on ourselves. And that kind of self-aversion, the voice of judgment and blame and condemnation. And ill will has a lot of manifestations in impatience, jealousy, frustration, irritation, intolerance. The list is really long. This is a big one. Hmm? It often has a very big voice and a very loud narrative. And it forms a lot of views. I am, you are. The voice of ill will can be a little bit quieter in in just the kind of ongoing grumble. The ongoing grumble. You know, I don't really like this. You know, I don't really want this. You know, my cushion's too hard. You know, it's an ongoing sort of grumble as we grumble our way through life. But of course, as I mentioned, it's, it's the act of a manifestation of a much more deeper, more latent tendency of both hatred and fear. <coughs> this is where aversion arises from. But what happens with ill will, of course, we create an other. We create an other that we are in argument with, that we are in dispute with, that we are disconnected and alien from, alienated from. Now, sometimes the other is external. You know, the person we struggle with, the situation we really hate. Sometimes the other is internal. We can create an other out of an emotion that we reject. Thoughts we feel we can't bear. Sensations that we feel are too much to tolerate. These can become the other. We push them away. It's a mechanism of disconnection. 
that perpetuates distress, but aversion actually in itself is distress and certainly takes us far away from our deepest aspirations and values. (coughs) Now, one of the primary difficulties with ill will or aversion is actually the reality is about the aversion we generate towards the aversion. This is the double whammy, isn't it? We don't want to be the kind of person who has these judgmental thoughts, you know, these condemning thoughts, these difficult emotions. And actually we do want to be the kind of person who has a different kind of thoughts and different kinds of emotions. So we see how aversion, not wanting to be this kind of person, having this kind of experience, triggers the craving to be the kind of person who's having this other kind of experience. And this sets up this kind of closed feedback loop that actually really is one of the things that mindfulness is most concerned with. That's what this path of mindfulness is so concerned with. is about raising our level of resilience, actually. Our capacity to meet the uncomfortable and the unpleasant without cascading into these circles of aversion. Developing our capacity actually to meet the pleasant and the unpleasant equally. Befriending both. Curious about both without being overwhelmed by the habitual reactions. The capacity to be with, to allow, to include, is the beginning, you know, is something that is really explicitly cultivated in Buddhist practice through what we did engaged in today, the formal practice of metta of befriending. This calms the narrative, begins to establish connection rather than disconnection. More Implicitly, this is taught in mindfulness-based interventions. I need to move along here. With John and I joked before coming down that he talked for an hour and I joked I was going to outdo him tonight. And actually, I don't want to. (laughs) So I'll just talk faster. (laughs) So... They talked about sleepiness and drowsiness. Sloth and torpor is a very awkward phrase. It essentially describes one of our most uh, available dissociation, dissociative mechanisms. Not talking about, you know, life fatigue. You know, the, the tiredness that comes from being overstretched and, and, you know, overworked and overextended. Actually, what we're talking about here is a mental state that actually is a kind of way of protecting ourselves, a way of protecting ourselves from from what we feel that we cannot embrace. We just check out. We don't feel. You see this on many, many different levels. There's, there's, There's a whole spectrum to this obscuration. It can be apathy, listlessness, disinterest, boredom. It can come in a kind of sense of lifelessness, flatness. Any of you who work in the field of depression relapse will be very, very familiar with how this particular pattern (coughs) manifests. It's what arises when we actually feel it's all just too much and we don't feel capable of meeting what is. Sometimes it's a lack of affect, Sometimes this sleepiness and drowsiness is just a kind of dreaminess, you know, a kind of a, just a sort of vagueness, a kind of disconnection. It's often what arises when we've exhausted all our strategies of craving and aversion to rearrange the conditions of the moment, inwardly and outwardly. And when we have failed to do so, we, are, we find our motivation collapses, our interest collapses, and our energy collapses. And we sink. We just sink. We absent ourselves from our life. And actually, you know, we experience a lot of touches of this on retreat, don't we? And please, please don't just 
be suspicious of all your honest fatigue. (laughs) I'm sure it's there. Here we are talking about a mental state that persists, but we we certainly experience it on retreat. And, And what we really begin to experience is a way that our... We live with an attention, a stimulation-bound attention. You know, we come on retreat and many of our, our kind of usual f- sources of stimulation are very much muted. You know, there's not much going on here. <laughs> and then we see how the interest level often starts to sink. You know, and the, and the, the, the attention level starts to sink with it. With it. And very often, this kind of sleepiness and drowsiness as a mental state actually triggers craving because we think, oh, something's missing. You know, something's missing. I need to go and find something to stimulate some interest. There we go to the tea packages again, you know. Um, I often... What it does, though, the danger of this kind of mental state is it really paralyzes effort, it paralyzes intention, it paralyzes responsiveness, it paralyzes motivation. And if I think of any of of these patterns that actually really requires a quite conscious intervention, this is the one. This is the one. Even though it's quite counterintuitive and swimming against the tide, it's why we say to you, stand up. Do something with your posture that requires effort. You know, move your attention through the sense doors. You know, don't allow, don't really consent to the sinking, because when we're sinking, it's almost like we have really abandoned our life, and it takes sometimes such an effort to be awake. The near enemy of sloth and torpor is, of course, restlessness and worry. And we do live in a very agitated world, and we can all be too familiar with an agitated and restless, worried mind. Isn't it amazing? We can worry about a lot. You know, we worry about the future. We worry about what's for lunch. We worry about other people. We worry about ourselves. We try and rehearse, over-rehearse things. Restlessness and worry is a big part of the inner critic. We over-rehearse things. We over-plan things. We, we try to do everything so perfectly. This is all part of this, this kind of spectrum, trying to secure our future and trying to secure ourselves in that future. It, it often kind of, uh, it's a big part of rumination. It's a big part of, of proliferation. The rest is the worry about things that have gone by, about the things I should have done differently, the choices I made or didn't make. And again, there's a big narrative that feeds this pattern. Um, and it's interesting, in, in many of the teachings of the Buddha, and this sounds really odd or almost impossible when the Buddha says actually the antidote to restlessness and worry is the cultivation of stillness sounds counterintuitive it sounds impossible when the mind is speeding and the body is following in its wake cultivate stillness first cultivate stillness of the body calming the sense doors beginning to connect with actually what's something much simpler. You know, as I mentioned, breathing in, calming the formations. Breathing out, calming the formations. Coming closer to the body. One of the great antidotes to restlessness and worry is actually learning what it means to rest. To actually rest within a single step. To rest within a single breath. To actually rest within the body, to begin to get a sense of what is it to actually rest in this moment. We are learning to calm the agitation, stepping out of the pattern. The last of these patterns, in case you haven't had enough bad news, 
It's a skeptical doubt. Now, this this is the kind. This is not the good doubt, you know, that makes us ask good questions and investigate and look into things, you know, in a very skillful way. Here, we're talking about paralyzing doubt, um, often rooted in self-doubt, that paralyzes our all intentions and movement and effort all the narratives of uncertainty. And we really see this features uh, that, you know, when we start doing the lists of for and against around decision-making, in, um, you know, if I did this, this could happen. If I did that, that can happen, you know, that inhibits any kind of choice. We, this is a kind of doubt that really is demanding certainty from an uncertain world. And it's a doubt that makes us ambivalent about commitment even committing ourselves to a single sitting. Now, there are two areas that I think are central to all insight meditation and all mindfulness practice. One is the cultivation of intention in our thoughts, words, acts, and learning to honor and sustain intention. All of what we do really develops through that. But the second area that's equally important is the development of confidence, confidence in capacity. And we cannot reason with doubt. Hmm? We can actually only take a leap, actually even maybe take a step into intentionality and commitment. It might just be committing to be intentionally present with one breath, one moment, one, one sitting. But that is the beginning of confidence. It's the beginning of capacity. Learning to accept that this process is not linear. Moments go really well, and then we just lose it. And those moments can cascade into doubt or into the renewal of intention. The Zen master was once asked, he says, what's the secret of your happiness? says, good judgment. student asks, how do you get good judgment? Zen master answers, experience. How do you get experience? Bad judgment. (laughs) This is a process, you know. We're exploring this. We make mistakes, you know. It's something to actually have that openness to making mistakes, to, to having the moments when we blow it, to having the moments when we falter, but actually then having that commitment to come back to the renewal of intentionality. Part of this, part of actually this, this ground of commitment, because we're not talking about blind faith here. You know, we're actually talking about confidence. And discernment is part of developing confidence. It's actually really beginning to know the patterns that operate well in ourselves really well and knowing where they lead knowing what their outcome is, really discerning what is helpful and what is unhelpful, what is skillful, what is unskillful. It's the way that mindfulness and effort are always engaging with each other. It's not about good and bad. And making a conscious commitment to the skillful rather than an unconscious commitment to the unhelpful. Confidence in Pali comes from the word sada which actually means to set one's heart upon. And what we set our heart upon, we actually also set our attention upon. It is helpful in our days here to really establish that mindfulness, establish that commitment, Establish ourselves in developing that emotional vocabulary of knowing the patterns as they arise and the way that we're engaging with those patterns to know that in every moment we're practicing something, either consciously or unconsciously, intentionally or unintentionally. And mindfulness is concerned with bringing sufficient awareness and sufficient understanding to not be able to choose what we are practicing and to choose what we are cultivating and beginning actually to bring this whole possibility of embodiment into something that is very present, that our presence are embodying our deepest values, our deepest aspirations. 
I want to end with a piece I came across by a man called Philip Simons. He's a man who was uh, diagnosed with Lou Gehrig's disease in uh, 1993, and he died nine years later. This is something he wrote. I stand at the edge of a life made shorter by illness and can't help being pulled out of the present moment into mourning my losses, courting my fears. I sigh over my lost prowess as a hula dancer. I fear the day when I'll be unable to lift a spoonful of lime jello to my lips. But we all stand at the edge. The present moment is in itself an edge. This evanescent sliver of time between past and future. We're called away from it continually by our earthly pleasures and concerns. Even now you may be thinking it's time for another cup of coffee and one of those blueberry muffins. Seems it's always time to be doing something other than what we're doing at the moment. While reading in your chair, you find yourself thinking about last night's argument with your spouse. You're thinking that it's time to rake the leaves, check your email, get some sleep. The present moment, like the spotted owl or the sea turtle, has become an endangered species. Yet more and more I find that dwelling in the present moment, in the face of everything that would call us out of it, is our highest spiritual discipline. More boldly, I would say that our very presentness is our salvation. The present moment, entered into fully, is our gateway to the eternal. So, thank you for your attention. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.